Hey, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 25 tonight, and uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter, and that will conclude our journey through Kings, which is, uh, seems like we've been in Kings for a while, but it was a a very wonderful journey. I've learned a great deal from these uh, two books in, in many ways. Lord willing, next week, next Thursday, we'll start in First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Chronicles is pretty much a, uh, except for the first handful of verses, it, it recaps really the the kings of Judah and really looks at it from a priestly point of view. And the priests of Judah obviously were only really concerned with the kings of Judah. So you won't, as we go through First and Second Chronicles, we're gonna we're gonna go through it rather quickly because we've already been through First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. And we're going to find that once we get into a certain portion of it, it's going to start with David again, you know, Saul, and then David, and then going through the Judah kings. It won't speak to the kings of Israel, but it'll just give us more information about those kings of Judah. And because we've covered a lot of that already, we're going to go quite a bit quicker through those. We may cover a chapter or two a night, maybe even three, depending on the situation, and then we'll get right into it. And the nice thing about Second Chronicles is it leads us right into the book of Ezra, and I'm looking forward to getting into that as well. But let's look at chapter 23 of Second Kings, uh, chapter 25, excuse me, of Second Kings tonight. Uh, last week we looked at the the reigns of Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim, and, and finally Zedekiah, who was Judah's final king. And Zedekiah reigned for 11 years. And it's just really an amazing thing to, to see the grace of God and how he had worked in the lives of his people. You know, when I think of the northern ten tribes, Israel, you know, they fell into idolatry, never recovered, and continued in that vein to the very end. And God allowed them to go into captivity much sooner, about 106 years or 116 years sooner than her sister, uh, Judah. And, uh, and, of course, Judah didn't learn the lesson. And, and tonight we're going to see the summation of all of that. And... You know, this chapter is kind of special to me, and, and, and I, I can't really explain why too much, <laughs> although when I think of Jerusalem, it's, it's, a, it's a city that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've had the privilege of being there in Israel three times so far, which is not many times, considering. Um, but every time I have gone, I have learned something and have been enriched so much. And, and being in Jerusalem, I remember in 2005 standing, and it was one of the few times we were actually able to get up on the Temple Mount. Most of the time when you go to Israel, you can't get on the Temple Mount, period. But that was a unique time, and we were actually able to get up there and walk around the, the Dome of the Rock, which, you know, I'm not really concerned about that so much. But just look, standing up on that piece of real estate, the most valuable, the most contested real estate in all of the world, and to sit there and to look out the eastern gate toward the Mount of Olives and to consider all of the things that have happened on that mount over the last 3,000 years, actually going back even farther than that, to think about 
the things that have happened on that mount, if the voices could speak, it's just overwhelming. And then not only that, but to consider what that city has yet coming ahead of it. You know, I mean, even through the tribulation and then finally into the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years, and and to stand there on that mount and to look out and look all around and think, my goodness. It just, it it literally, I left vibrating because I was just so excited. Not, I wasn't sure whether to laugh or cry or, or sing out loud. It was a mixture of emotions. But Jerusalem has always been the apple of God's eye. Jerusalem. It's where he's placed his name there. It's the city of the great king. And one day, folks, Jesus, when he comes back in his second coming, physically to the earth, he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And a new temple will be built. Unlike any temple that has been built thus far, much wider, much bigger than anything we've seen so far, And you and I, the bride of Christ, will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And then a new heavens and a new earth will be created. And then a new Jerusalem will come down. And there is finally the eternal state for the believer. That is what I think of heaven. And it's going to be awesome. And so, as we look at this chapter tonight, it kind of brings to an end at least this, uh, an age, if you will before Israel will be led into captivity. In Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. And whether it's an individual or whether it's a nation, God is serious about sin. And there are consequences for sin and disobedience. We know that, don't we? And so Israel has already been taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And now, as a result of their disobedience, Judah and Jerusalem will be taken captive by the Babylonians and then led into captivity for 70 years. And Judah will be taken into captivity because of her idolatry and also because the land had not enjoyed her Sabbath for the land. In Leviticus and also in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 21, it intimates that for 490, 490 years, the children of Israel were not keeping the Sabbath for the land, meaning they were supposed to till the land and grow crops for six years and then let the seventh year be dormant and lie fallow. And that would allow the, the ground to replenish itself. Very important, but just like us, the Jews didn't do that for 490 years. And God told them that he's going to get that those 70 years. Because 490 years divided by 7 is 70. So not only because of their idolatry, but because also they owed him Sabbaths for that land. And it would lie fallow for 70 years. And it would be overgrown. In fact, turn with me to Leviticus 26. Leviticus chapter 26. This is not something that many people, you've certainly heard it, but it's not something you hear a whole lot. We we know that they went into captivity because of their sin, but oftentimes we don't hear about this whole idea of of them neglecting the Sabbaths. But look at Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 27. It it talks about the consequences of disobedience. And just look at verse 27 first. It says, And after all this... 
After all of this, and he lists quite a bit there in that chapter, but after all this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, and, and he lists a whole bunch of other things, but I want you to skip down to verse 32 because this is where it gets into where we're talking about tonight. He says in verse 32, I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He did it to uh, Israel. He's going to do it now to Judah. And your land shall be desolate, your cities waste. Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. And then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. So in other words, you haven't been keeping them. And here, this is all the way back in Leviticus. So God is really prophesying ahead of time of what he knows is coming. The Jews don't know that it's coming, but he knows it's coming. And so he's telling them in advance here in a prophecy in Leviticus. As long as it lies desolate, verse 35, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelt in it. And as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, in the hands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another." As it were before a sword, when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their fathers' iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then there's the, there's the, um, the hinge there, right? Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember, I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and while enjoy and will enjoy, excuse me, its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. It's almost like God knows what's coming. And of course he did. And you and I don't know unless the Lord tells us we don't know. But he's telling them. And yet for all that, I'm sorry, excuse me, the end of verse 43, they will accept their, if they will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor will I abhor them to destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am uh, the Lord, their God. But for their sake, notice this, even though this prophecy has been given to us in Leviticus, God telling them, notice the good news. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So God is telling them what's going to happen, and that the land will enjoy its Sabbath when they finally go away from God. He will scatter them, but he will ultimately bring them back. How many people have that confidence? Is there any nation on the earth that God loves them so much 
that he will say, you're going to go through this, and then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen afterwards. Most of the time, we, we go through something really horrible, and we don't know the end of it. But notice how God does this for them. And how he does it for us, even, too. And that's why you and I, Christian, as we look at the world around us and we see how bad things are getting, we know the end of the story. We know the end of history. We don't know the minutia of what's going to happen between now and next week and the week following and even the next couple of years. But we ultimately know the bigger picture. And to me, that's very comforting. And, and, and I hold on to that. That gives us our compass. That, that is our rudder. That is our, our star. That is our lighthouse in the midst of a sea that seeming is you know, chaotic and full of chaos. The word of God is that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, isn't it? And God is here giving them. And to think that Israel and Judah's captivity could have been avoided if they would have listened to the Lord. And as we're going to see tonight, if Zedekiah had just listened to Jeremiah the prophet, if he would have just listened and surrendered, he could have averted the city being burnt and having many lives lost all of his family, and including himself, rotting away in prison in Babylon. But God had warned the nation of Israel concerning this before they even entered the promised land. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I'm doing this because there's so much here that is, uh, account- Israel is accountable. He's told them. Way in advance, way in advance, like he tells us. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 15, notice what the Lord says. He says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and all his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now, skip down to verse 32. Because then it gets right to the point of what we're looking at tonight. He says, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long, and there shall be no strength in your, in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. So you shall be driven mad because of the sight with which your eyes see. And the Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils, which cannot be healed. And from the seal or from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, the Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord drives you. And then down in verse 41, he goes on and he says, You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Now go to verse 45. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you. And I'm reading this to you because this is what happened during the siege that we, that we already began to look at last week uh, of Nebuchadnezzar coming and laying a siege and trying to starve them out by laying a siege all around the city, trying to starve them out, instead of just coming in with armaments and just blasting through and, and killing them, they just waited patiently. I mean, if they got food and water on the outside, then you might as well just wait. There's no wasted energy. Much of his army doesn't get destroyed. He can just wait for them to starve. And then when they're weak and they're strong, they can go in and clean up so to speak. 
In verse 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you're destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or of the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. Now, we know that that did happen when the Assyrians came against the northern ten tribes and it's going to happen in the, in the southern two tribes too. They're going to get so hungry they will eat their own young and it gets even worse. The sensitive and the very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you at all your gates. And the tender and the delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the foot, sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity, will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemies shall distress you at all your gates. And if you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in the, this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sickness. Moreover, he'll bring back to you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed, and you shall be left few in number. Whereas... You were as the stars of heaven in multitude because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked off the land which you go to possess. And then the Lord will scatter you from among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. What a horrible thing, isn't it? And, but you know, as we look at that, and as you, if you read those and you didn't understand the character of God, you might think, well, this is a God that I don't want to serve. But as we will see tonight, and as we've already read, God is a God of grace. He is a God of grace, but he's very serious 
about sin, again, whether it's an individual or a nation. And I want to ask you, are you taking your sin seriously, or are you like Israel, playing footloose and fancy free with it? And see, we can't do that, folks. And and today we live in a culture, we live in Babylon. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think literally. I never thought I would see the things that I'm seeing, that I'm seeing now. In some cities and in public libraries, things that are going on that are just horrendous. Horrendous. Sodom and Gomorrah has come to America. And what is the church? What are we going to do? How do we respond to that? How are you going to respond to that? May the Lord birth within us a desire to really draw close and to really take an inventory of our own life and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done with my the things I've been flirting with over here and the things I've considered over here, or maybe the things that I'm doing right now, I, I want to be done with it. And I want to be done with it now because I'm scared. <laughs> and it's okay to be scared. Did you know fear brought me into the kingdom of God? Somebody told me that if I didn't receive Christ, I was going to go to hell. And I believed them because I knew I deserved it. So fear is not a bad thing. If it draws you away from God, that's a bad thing. But if fear draws you into the kingdom of God where he will ultimately show his love and tender mercy toward you, then so be it. Right? So be it. Fear is not a bad thing. Let's look at 2 Kings 25. It says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, and it's speaking of Zedekiah's reign. He reigned from 597 to 586 B.C., a total of, of... Uh, uh, 11 years. And in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, a very specific time, notice, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So all around the city of Jerusalem, they're building a wall around it. And basically what that does is that even if they're able to get out, they have to go through another wall to get out. And that causes, it allows them to see who's, who's trying to escape the city, and it also keeps them in. And, and they, they they can't get out. And, and by doing this, they would starve them. And so this ninth year and tenth month of Zedekiah's reign would put this literally in January of 588 B.C. And so the city, verse 2, was besieged until the eleventh year of King Hezekiah. His eleventh year was his last year, which was 586. That was the time when Nebuchadnezzar finally came, after besieging it, finally coming against it and torching it with fire and killing some people and taking others captive back to Babylon. So verse 3, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And so this this was the ninth, this was July 16th, 586 BC. And it was the ninth of Av. Av is the fourth or fifth month of the Jewish calendar. It's a, it's a Babylonian calendar, and Babylonian names, by the way, which they still keep. But the ninth of Av is actually uh, the time, and this is an interesting fact, that both Hebrew temples were destroyed on the very same day in the Hebrew calendar, the ninth of Av. 
And many other things happened on the 9th of Av pertaining to the Jews. I don't know if it was their enemies uh, designed to make it on that day or whether it was just happenstance, but today the Jews treat the 9th of Av, that month, that day of that month, they treat it as a day of mourning. So then it says, notice verse 4, Then the city was broken through, and all the men of war inside, they fled at night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city, and the king went out by way of the plain. So this, this wall that it's speaking of, or this place where the king and his men got out, was in the southern part of of, of Zion, which is the city of David. If you were to look at the Temple Mount here, right to the south of the Temple Mount, there's a little sliver of land, and that's where the king's palace was. That's where the king lived. And right at the end of that, underneath that, is the Valley of Hinnom, where they would have the sacrifices at, at certain times. It was also a trash dump. But they would enter out through a way back there, and they did it by night, thinking that they could get by the Chaldeans, meaning the Babylonians, and so they fled eastward, going toward the Jordan Valley, perhaps trying to flee to the other side of the Jordan or hide within the covert of the cliffs and the caves near the Jordan Valley, perhaps even trying to make their way down toward En Gedi along the western shore of the Dead Sea, which if you've been to Israel with us, you know that that area along the Dead Sea is riddled with caves and little clefts in the rock and literally thousands of people could hide and you'd never know that there was anybody there. So many little pocks in the rocks, little cliffs going back 20 feet, 30 feet, several hundred feet, little caves, little crevices where you can hide. Some, some of them are very big. David and his, so a couple hundred of his men hid in one in, in Gedi when he was being chased by Saul. And Saul came in to do his business right inside that cave. And all these men are in the back in the dark and they didn't even know. Saul didn't even know that there were like th- two or three hundred guys being very quiet, which is another miracle. Right? Two or three hundred guys being quiet. Verse 5, but the army of the Chaldeans, they pursued the king and they overtook him. Notice how far they got. They overtook them in the plains of Jericho. Now, uh, if you know Israel and you've been there, you know what what a trek it is to go from the Temple Mount area and then to go eastward. Uh, into, uh, down the road, down the hill, down the mountain really, into the Jordan Plain. And right there at the bottom, right to the left, is Jericho. And so they somehow managed, and maybe they did it one by one and the, the Chaldeans didn't see them, I don't know. But they got pretty far before they overtook them and finally and got them. And, and, and it says that the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And Jericho is in the Jordan Valley, and the Jordan Valley is in between two mountains. On each side of, uh, of the Jordan Valley are two mountain ranges, and right there in the middle is a fault line. That, that Jordan River lies right on a major tectonic plate. And if there's ever an earthquake big enough, it's going to split that thing. <laughs> okay, so it's a fault line that goes right down the center of the Jordan Valley. And so they took the king... They got him, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment upon him. Now, Riblah is north of Damascus. It's, it's several miles north of Damascus on the Orontes River up in modern-day Lebanon, Syria, and that 
area up there. It says, Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and then they bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. So the last thing he sees is the execution of his sons that would be the heirs to the throne of David. But the throne of David is going to be interrupted for quite a long time. The king is coming. <laughs> and when he comes, he's going to take his rightful, rightful place on the throne of Judah, on the throne of David. It's been without its king for a couple thousand years now. But Jesus is coming. And you're coming with him. And you're going to rule and reign with him, Christian. That ought to put a big smile a mile wide on your face. Because we're going to be with him. And in new bodies, too, which I think is really great, because all my hair will grow back. I'll have these nice, long, blonde locks like I had when I was a teenager, instead of this. But what's interesting is while already, by this time... Nebuchadnezzar had already come against Jerusalem. In 606 B.C., Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, began taking some of the, Daniel tells about it in the first couple of verses of his, of his prophecy, how Nebuchadnezzar, or Nabopolassar, his father, came and took some of the kids captive, took some of the, the, the best of the best, including was Daniel and his three friends. And I believe Ezekiel was also in that first um, uh, deportment that Nebuchadnezzar had grabbed. The only, he took only the best. He took the king's kids. He took the very best of Judah and took them captive. And Daniel and his three friends and Ezekiel was among that group of people. But... While already now, as we're reading this, as, as these events are transpiring, Ezekiel is already in Babylon. An easy way to remember that there's two exilic, uh, really three exilic prophets, uh, meaning they, they, they wrote and prophesied during the exile of Babylon. One was Jeremiah, and it starts with a J, but he always stayed in Jerusalem until he, was, he went to Egypt afterwards. But Jeremiah wrote his prophecy in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was one of the first, with Daniel, we believe, to go into captivity into Babylon. So he wrote his prophecy, the book of Ezekiel, while in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And then Daniel, he wrote his prophecy while in Babylon. But while already in exile with a great number of Jews, Ezekiel in Babylon began acting out for the, 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 the exiles there, the Jewish exiles, the captives, he began acting out for them what was coming yet upon Jerusalem and also what would become of King Zedekiah. Let me just read this for you and for the sake of time. You can write it down in the margin of your Bible, but it's Ezekiel chapter 12. We're just going to look at the first 16 verses. So Ezekiel is acting out what is going to happen yet to the rest of Jerusalem and King Zedekiah very specifically. Now again, he's hundreds of miles away. It hasn't happened yet. As he's doing this, he's writing these things down. And when the others come into captivity, they're going to read about what God showed him. And then we didn't, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have iPhones. Hey, guess what? Ezekiel's acting up again. I mean, they had nothing like that. So Ezekiel 12, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, 
You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity, and go into captivity by day in their sight. So he's already in captivity, but he's showing the captives in Babylon what is going to happen yet to the remnant that are still back in Jerusalem? And so he says to him, You shall go to your place into captivity, to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight, as though going into captivity. And at evening you shall go in their sight, like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight, you shall bear them on your shoulder and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. And so I did, Ezekiel said, as I was commanded. And I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity. And at evening, I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. And in the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem. He's speaking about Zedekiah, Israel's or Judah's last king. This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. And they shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. So here, think about this. God is giving to Ezekiel, moment by moment, what's going to come to pass. And he's writing it down. And then finally, when these captives, when they finally, in 586, when they finally go into Babylon, Ezekiel's going to write and show it to him and say, look what I wrote down a, a while ago. Did this happen? Yeah, God told me. He told me what was coming. He shall, uh, let me see. I will spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Notice he's not going to see it. Why? Because at Riblah, before he would even be sent to Babylon, his sons would be killed in front of him and then his eyes would be poked out. He would not see Babylon, although he would go into prison and ultimately die there. And I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. I guess so. Then I will scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries, but I will spare a few of their men from the sword and from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I'm the Lord. And what an amazing thing. This is how I'm going to prove to you that I am who I say I am. I told you way in advance. I told you back in in Leviticus. We looked at that tonight. I told you back in Deuteronomy, way before we even came into the promised land. And now it's coming to pass. And by the way, I'm going to tell you what's going to come next. And I love that about God. And then he told them, but at the end, I'm going to draw you back into your land. What God is a God like this? 
Who is this God that does this? Is there, do you know of anyone who would be willing to do that? That can do that. We don't even have the understanding of, of what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow. You think on September 10th, anybody knew that those two towers were going to go down and the Pentagon was going to be you know, wrecked and a, and a plane was going to uh, crash in the middle of the a field on Pennsylvania? You think anybody had that on their mind? Nobody knew. There were some rattlings about something going on, but nobody knew for sure. And yet God says, this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. What kind of God is this? Well, he's Jehovah. He's Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no fighting him. If you want to resist him, have at it because you're going to lose. If you want to resist God, you are, it's a fool's errand. You will lose. If you're like me, I want to surrender quickly. When I feel any pain whatsoever, even if it's something I ate for dinner, I'm confessing things I hadn't even done yet. And I'm like, Lord, I confess, whatever it is, I had too many burgers, I know, Lord, I know that's gluttony and it's a sin, but would you help me? He's a good God. He's a good Lord. And you and I serve him. You and I know him. And guess what? He knows you and his spirit indwells you. Isn't that wonderful to know that his spirit indwells you? There is no greater feeling in the world. And yes, feeling. I don't like talking about feelings that much, but you know what? There is a feeling that you can have in your gut, in your heart, in your being when you know the Spirit of God is residing on the throne of your heart and you're willing to let him. You're, not, you're no longer trying to fight him. You're surrendering. Surrender. Surrender. And we're going to see that tonight. God is going to tell the Jews, surrender to Babylon. Don't resist them. In fact, God had warned Zedekiah personally earlier by the prophet Jeremiah, but Zedekiah would not listen. He wouldn't listen. In Jeremiah chapter 38, beginning in verse 14, let me just read this to you for the sake of time. It says that Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want to ask you something. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, you will surely put me to death. And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me, king. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. And then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. Here it is. Here is the, the thing. If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. Notice the conditional statement. If you surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans. Well, they were doing what God told them to do. We're going to see this in a few minutes, that God told them to surrender. Don't fight it. Judgment's coming. Give in. 
I'm taking you away from this land, and I'm taking away your house, that you, you know, the temple that you put all your pride in. I'm taking it all away. You're going away into a, language, a land you don't know. Give up, surrender, and you will live. But Jeremiah said, they shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord, which I speak to you, Jeremiah said to him. So it shall be well with you, and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. And, um, and, and I'll, just, I'll just leave it there. But the idea here is that God warned Zedekiah. He warned him in advance. God not only warned Zedekiah, but he also warned the nations all around Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And he encouraged them to surrender to the Babylonians that they would live. In Jeremiah 27, it says this, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who came to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall you say, Thus you shall say to your masters. And here it is. God says, Send send these ambassadors back to all these countries and tell them this. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Can you believe that? God is saying, yes, this pagan, idolatrous king, this idol-worshiping king, I give it all to him. I'm giving it all to him. He's my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given to him to serve. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's sons until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, I also spoke to Zedekiah. King of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, don't listen to the words of the false prophets saying that that's not going to happen because it's going to happen. And then on top of that, for those who had already gone into captivity in Babylon, God told them. So think about this. He's telling Zedekiah to surrender, to give in. He's telling all the nations around Jerusalem and Israel, surrender to the king of Babylon. And now God is going to tell um, Jeremiah, send a note, send a letter to the captives in Babylon right now, Jeremiah. Send this letter to them. And he says, now these, and this is Jeremiah chapter 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, to the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this happened after Jeconiah the king, uh, Jeconiah or Coniah or Jehoiachin, those names are synonymous by the way. 
And the letter was sent by the hand, and I, let me just get right to it, uh, right, right in verse, um, verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, here's a letter, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive. Notice what God says to them. Whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's his message. Build houses. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. What? You want me to pray for Babylon while I'm in Babylon? To pray for the peace of it? Yeah, that's what I want you to do. For in, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For, I, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are accomplished. Notice. After se- God tells them exactly how long it's going to be. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, meaning to Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And that's something we need to do as Americans right now. We need to seek the Lord with all of our heart. Amen? Even though we are in America, I fear that we're already captive. Pray for this country. I will be found of you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to this place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Is God going to do this? Yes, he does. He's going to do it. After 70 years are accomplished, Cyrus is going to come on the scene, and he's going to let the people go. Any of them that want to go, he'll even give them money to help them out to build their temple. And then Artaxerxes. They're going to help these pagan kings. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the kings who sit on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city, concerning your brethren who have not gone up with you into captivity, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten, they are so bad. And I will pursue them with the sword, with the famine, with the pestilence. I will deliver them into trouble among all the nations, to be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. Isn't that exactly what has happened to the Jews? They've been dispersed from Israel, you know, from the moment they were, uh, you know, from the moment of 70 AD, they were dispersed throughout all of the world. And then in 1948, he began to bring them all back. They became a nation again. Unheard of. (laughs) May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation after, you know, a couple thousand years. But see, God always punishes rebellion and disobedience. But he rewards 
I'm sorry, he always punishes rebellion and disobedience, but he rewards obedience. And maybe you're going through a chastening, just like Israel had gone through a chastening. Maybe you're going through something right now that you don't like. God has put his finger on something in your life, and maybe he's exposed you for a little while, or maybe he's, he's done something to make you aware of it, and it's really crushing your heart, and he's really dealing with you. He's taking you to the mat with whatever it is. I want to encourage you to surrender. Surrender to what he's going to do. Don't fight him. Just like God told the Israelites, surrender and it will go well with you. When God is putting his finger on something in us, surrender quickly. Don't fight him about it. Don't argue with him. Oh, that's really not my problem, Lord. That's so-and-so's problem. That's not really me. Just surrender and do what he says. You will be the better for it. And you will get through that trial quicker than if you resist him and resist him. Have you gone through kindergarten twice? Most of you in the room haven't but I have. Check this out. In kindergarten, I used to run out when the teacher turned her back. And I did it so, I was such a rotten little scoundrel that they finally had to hold me back another year and I had to go through it again because I wasn't mature enough for kindergarten. It's okay to laugh. I'm laughing at myself. But surrender Surrender, surrender, surrender. We sing the song, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Are we really surrendering? Now, surrendering all is a big theological conundrum. But are you surrendering anything? Are you surrendering? God wants you to surrender. And don't... Don't fear the chastening of the Lord. As he chased Israel, he's going to chasten us at times too. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Have you not forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? And here he's quoting from the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, listen to this, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Because he loves you. If your parents didn't love you, they'd say, hey, have fun out in 490 in the middle of rush hour. Here's your big wheel and here's a lollipop. Go out and have fun. See you at dinner time. Well, your kid's not coming home that night. Why? Because you're sane and you love. And therefore, you say, you cannot go out in the 490 traffic at 5 p.m. God loves you too. And he knows what we need. If you endure chastening, and chastening always has with it this idea of of instruction. See, the devil wants to just destroy you. He just wants to pummel you. He wants to destroy you. But God says, no, I don't want to destroy you. I want to get the point across. And only enough pressure to where you yell, uncle. And when you do, I will restore you. That is what chastening is. It's instruction to repentance, to wholeness, to godliness. That's what we need. That's what I need. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are literally bastards. You are illegitimate and are not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us. Anybody can say amen to that? 
Yes, I had a mother who chased after me with a skinny belt, and I deserved every bit of it. We've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Much we, must we not surrender to him? And he really is a good, good father. My mother, my father, they, they love them, but they're not perfect. God knows just the right amount of pressure. Do you know that? He knows just what it takes to get you to give. And why? It's because he loves you. He doesn't want to destroy you. It was his heart for Israel and Judah this whole time. I don't want to do these things to you, but I'm telling you in advance that when they happen, you're going to realize that I am God and there is no other. I'm going to tell you the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you things before they occur. And when they do occur, your jaw is going to hit the ground and you're going to draw all kinds of flies and maybe even a few hummingbirds. <laughs> your mouth is going to be wide, so open, you know, open so wide. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of what? His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, and this is true, I've known this in my own heart, and I own this scripture, and I know you do too. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you hear that? It's because of that, it's training me, and it's a peaceable thing. When I finally get it and I obey it, it's very peaceable. I love it. Notice, and then in the fifth month, back in our text, in the fifth month and on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great. In other words, the high and the mighty, the king's uh, counselors, the people who are rich. He burned them with fire. And all the army, the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. I remember being in Jerusalem a few, uh, it was back in, uh, I think it was 20, 2011, I think. And, and in Jerusalem, there's this place called Burnt House. I don't know how many, how many of you have gone and, and visited it, but it's basically a place. And after the Six-Day War in Jerusalem, they were excavating and they found the ruins of something and they began to look around and, and they discovered that they had found the house of a Levite during the 70-year... In, in, in 70 AD, when the Romans came and burnt everything to the ground, and there was a Levite's house, and they know this because he had implements that were Levitical in his house, and his whole family died. And they found bones, and they found other things in it. It's called Burnt House, and, and they just came upon it. It's amazing. You can be digging anywhere in Jerusalem and find all kinds of stuff. It's really crazy. But this goes back even further to 586 B.C., then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, verse 11, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. 
But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. He took all the best, but he left the poor of the land to keep the land. And that was good for Nebuchadnezzar, too, because when, if they, whatever they wanted to do with the land, they came back and it was well tended to some extent. He didn't just leave it fallow and let the, you know, everything go to a pot. He, he wanted people there to tend the land. And then the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans, they broke them in pieces because they were so big, and, and they broke them so that they could break them into little pieces where they could carry them back to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils which, were the, which with the priests ministered with, the fire pans, the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver the captain of the guard took away, the two pillars, one sea, and the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network and the pomegranates all around the capital were all bronze. And, and the second pillar was the same with the network. And these are things that Solomon had, had made back when he uh, built the temple, remember? These are the dimensions. These are exactly the same things. And the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And so Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, he took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Remember, Riblah is up in the north part in modern-day Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, in that area. That's where they had their headquarters, right along the Orontes River, which would go up and meet with the Euphrates River. And then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. And so now that they are taken captive, what does uh, the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar do? He puts somebody in power for the poor who were there to tend the land. Just a few people. And so then the, he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor. They came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Remember, Mizpah used to be the capital of Israel before, um, uh, before Samaria was. So there he is in Mizpah. And then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kareah, Saraiah, the son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, and Jeazaniah, the son of, the son of a Maacathite, they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, notice what Gedaliah said. Now Gedaliah was a gentleman who was confederate and had a heart with Jeremiah the prophet. Because Jeremiah, remember, was the one who told them, surrender and you will live. Thus says the Lord, surrender and you will live. So Gedaliah, being a friend of Jeremiah, he's like, 
all right, we're surrendering. We're going to do exactly what he says, and we're going to live like God had told us. So that sounds pretty good to me. So Gedaliah took an oath before these men and said to them, don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans, meaning the Babylonians. Dwell in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishma, of the royal family, he came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. So they saw Gedaliah as a traitor. How could you tell us to surrender to the enemy? We are patriots. Does that ring a bell with any of you? I wonder if there's a lesson here. (laughs) It's a lesson I don't like, to be honest with you. And the people, all the people, small and the great, and the captains of the armies arose and they went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So they killed Gedaliah, whom Nebuchadnezzar put in power, and a bunch of other people, and then they flee to Egypt. But then God tells them later on, we don't have time to go there. He says, I'm going to find you in Egypt. You can go to Egypt all you want. I'm going to find you there. And you're going to be, you're going to, you're, it's not going to be well for you. And God follows through on his promise. Jeremiah actually gets taken with them to, to Egypt. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin. Remember, he was the son of Jehoiachim, Jehoiakim, I'm sorry. So Jehoiachin was the son of Jehoiakim. And it came to pass, and remember, he was taken captive earlier, but it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Now, evil Merodach, if you think of it, when Nebuchadnezzar, he, uh, after his reign, his son, evil Merodach, became king. Okay, so that's who we're talking about is his son. And he reigned from 562 to 560 BC, just two years. And then, and notice this, this man, well, you think of a name like Evil Merodach, you'd think that he would have kept Jehoiachin in prison and maybe taken away his food with a name like that. But what does he do? He spoke kindly to Jehoiachin. And he gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So there was something about this man that he really liked. And he had this friendship with him. Something was happening, and he didn't see him as an enemy anymore. And he, he, he started to notice what happened. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. What a mystery that is. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day. Notice all the days of his life. Isn't that amazing? Nebuchadnezzar's son, evil Merodach. Yes, that was his name. Actually, his name was Amel Marduk, but he was also called evil Merodach. And he's the one who showed compassion on Jehoiachin. And just like Jonathan, remember, Saul's son, David brought Jonathan, who was wounded in his feet, He brought him and he set him at the table of King David and he ate at the table of King David all of his life. Same kind of thing here. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, takes Jehoiachin, this king of Jerusalem, who had been in captivity, he takes him out of his prison, gives him a nice new suit, sets him down and says, 
I'm going to give you a provision and you can eat with me every night. What a blessing. Isn't God good? It reminds me of the verse in Proverbs that says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And I just love that. But I think of surrender. Will you surrender tonight? Whatever the Lord is wrestling with you about, do you find you have that spirit of fighting? Will you surrender? Make it easy work for God because you're the only one who's going to have it tough if you fight him. If you wrestle with God, just like Jacob, you know, it's not going to go well. If God really wanted to win, he could have won. But he wants the best for you and I, and that's his love. And he always tells us the sweet thing. Yes, I'm going to chase you. Yes, you're going to go through difficulties. But at the end of that, ah, remember the book of Job? All the things that Job went through? Job didn't even know. I mean, it wasn't itemized before him. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and do this, and then you're really going to be upset. And then I'm going to do it. And then on top of all that, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to allow this to happen. And Job's like, <laughs> Lord, you know. And he didn't know. And he went through all of that. And Job, at the end of his life, says, you know, I've heard with you. I've heard of you. But now I see you. I have a depth of understanding of your character because I've gone through suffering. And my suffering wasn't in vain You taught me some powerful lessons that I'll never forget and I will never forget them. And I will be able to comfort others with the comfort you have comforted me with, Lord. And he surrendered. Finally, he surrendered and God gave him double what he had before. And he was a real man. He's not some fictional character. Jesus spoke of Job as a real man. There was no allegory. There was no parable. It was a real man. And you're real to him. And he loves you and I. Isn't it good to be loved by the king? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this book. Lord, it's been quite a journey. And we've learned a lot. I know I have. And Lord, I pray that I would continue learning these lessons. And and, and they're, they're hard lessons. I pray that our country, the United States of America, learns lessons. Every American should be hearing what I'm sharing tonight. Every American should be hearing these things. For if they did, maybe, just maybe, Lord, they would turn from their wicked ways. Maybe we, the church, would turn from our wicked ways, from our compromise. Lord, would you do that work in us tonight? And tomorrow and the weeks following, the months ahead, the years ahead. Lord, we need you, Jesus. Without you, we are nothing. We are completely base without you, Jesus, and we're lost. So thank you for saving us, Lord. I pray that, Lord, nobody here would have any condemnation whatsoever. Conviction, yes, including myself, but no condemnation. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.